Father, when I read about folks in the church in years past, our forefathers in other countries and even in our own country were people who oftentimes spent hours each day in prayer. People who began their day with a sincere prayer, prayed throughout the day, and then would do the same thing at night before they'd retire. I fear, dear God, that we have lost some of our enthusiasm for prayer. That we pray on the run, that we pray quickly and hurriedly, and oftentimes, Lord, we don't take time to really think through what we're saying or what we're asking. By design, dear God, you have called on us to be a praying church. And a part of our worship service is for us to stop and pray. And our forefathers, who have written the guidelines for our worship, understood what you desired, and they have prayers very much a part of what we do. And Father, with those comments, I would ask you now to help us pray. I pray that your Holy Spirit would reach down deep inside of us, and that you draw us to you. I pray, dear God, that you'd direct our minds to you. And I pray, O Lord, you'd cause us to be open to the moving of your Spirit. We're made in your image, Lord, but it's a faded image. You're a glorious God, a God of power, a God of might, a God who's never thwarted, a God who is sovereign, independent authority, who is working your own will out day by day in our lives and the history of this country and this world. Help us to see clearly who you are, dear Lord, so that we might appreciate you. Help us, Lord, to realize how deep our sin runs, that the sin of Adam and Eve is the same sin that we've all been born with, and that it's a compelling kind of sin that causes a darkness and a distortion to life. And yet, Father, before the foundation of the world, you chose that at a particular point in life you would reach out and touch those of us who now can say we believe and others in the future. And through the power of your calling, you would give us faith, give us the opportunity, give us missionaries and preachers, and others to share the gospel, and you would complete the very thing that you started, for you'd bring us to faith. Father, forgive us of our sins. Let the blood of Jesus Christ truly wash us clean, not because we have become righteous, but because of his righteousness. And help us to know, Lord, that we're going to live eternity with you because of that because of what you have done, not because of what we've accomplished. And help us to be a thankful people and to praise you and live for you. Father, there are a lot of things going on in our country that are troubling. There's a lot of disturbance in homes and in schools, in the workplace, <clears throat> in political arenas. 
There are a lot of people who are at odds and who have no boundaries. A lot of people who put aside any possible guidelines from Scripture. I pray, dear God, for renewal in the United States of America. And I pray that we might learn some of those boundaries from a God who loves us. And that we might learn to be a disciplined people and to do what is pleasing to you. And to know that you have a much better idea about how we ought to live our lives. Father, there are missionaries all around the world. Some of them in our own country, some in other countries. And they serve you, Lord, in a place that's more difficult than even here. Because they live in a cross-cultural setting with all of the other normal stresses. We pray for them and pray that your Holy Spirit will give them peace and that your angels will protect them. And we pray, dear God, that in a small way we and our denomination might join with other faithful denominations in presenting Jesus Christ here and around the world. Teach us, Lord, how to do that. Give us the heart to do that. Father, there are lots of folks who come together to worship here and elsewhere on Sunday who this past week have felt all kinds of challenge, personal and family and business. We have folks right now, Lord, who are sick and who are receiving treatment, and we pray for them and pray for their families. Help us to know, dear God, that you're in control of all of this. And that all things really do work together for good for those who know you and are called according to your purpose. And help us to believe that and to find peace in that. Father, thank you for the time we have together today. I ask your blessing on us. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to the 28th chapter. The Gospel of Matthew, the 28th chapter, and we're going to begin our study with the 16th verse. The Gospel of Matthew, the 28th chapter, and we're going to study verses 16 through 20 this morning. Please keep your Bible open in your lap in front of you and follow along. Please pray for me and pray for yourself as you do that with a smile on your face. Let's pray together. Father, we open your word with the assurance that you're going to help us understand it and that you're going to help us apply it to our life. So I thank you, Lord, in advance for what you're about to do. And I ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us have heard about Leonardo da Vinci. Some of us have seen some of his work. Learned an interesting thing about one of his pieces of work this past week. Back in 1503, he was commissioned by a very wealthy merchant. And the commission went like this. I will give you the wherewithal to live 
while you work on a portrait of my wife. And he went to work on that portrait. For three years he worked on it. And then when the time came to deliver it to that wealthy merchant, he took it with him to Paris, leaving Italy and leaving his benefactor behind. He went to Paris and he lived there for a while. Ultimately, the painting found its way back to Italy. It was in Italy for a while, but not given to the man who commissioned it. And after it had been in Italy for a while, Napoleon took possession of it, took it back to Paris, and kept it in his own home for his own enjoyment. So not only did the one who had commissioned it not have access to it, neither did the French people for a very long time. Ultimately, it ended up in the Louvre on display there, and some of you may have seen it there. August 2011. Three men go into the Louvre on a Monday. The Louvre is closed on Mondays. They get into the Louvre, one of them having worked there before and was recognized and was given access. They walked into the area where this painting of this lady hung on the wall. They took the painting down. They took it into a stairwell. They took the glass off the front. They took it out of the frame that it was in, very careful not to disturb the frame because it also was valued. And they took the three men, that painting of that wealthy merchant's wife, out of the loop and back to Italy. Several years went by and no one knew if it had been destroyed or whether someone was just hiding it. And one of those three men decided to try to sell it. When he tried to sell it, his explanation was that it really belonged to Italy. Well, in fact, it really belonged to the person who had commissioned it. He went to an art dealer who then called the police. He was arrested. The painting was sent back in time to the Louvre, never delivered to the man who had commissioned it and who had long since died. Now, why do I tell you that story? Isn't there something unfair in all that? When somebody commissions something, when somebody puts the money up for something to happen and the person makes a commitment to do it, shouldn't they follow through and do it? The answer is yes, folks. Yes. Thank you. If you don't say yes to that, my sermon just died. (laughs) Jesus gave a commission to us. Wouldn't you think it's the right and just and fair thing for us to follow through on the commission? Because the commission he has given us, he has already resourced. And you and I already possess the resources. I want you to look at the commission and keep asking yourself, should I exercise this commission in my own life? Is that what Jesus wants? I'm reading from Matthew, the 28th chapter, beginning with the 16th verse. Follow along and listen very carefully because God is about to speak to us. 
But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I want you to remember something. This is the hand of Matthew, one of the disciples. This is an eyewitness account of what took place on one occasion after the resurrection of Jesus. One of those times when he appeared. It begins by talking about the occasion for the giving of the commission. 16 and 17 make it very clear. Matthew, and I find this fascinating, starts out by saying the 11 disciples. It's on his mind that there aren't 12. It's on his heart that Judas is no longer a part of that mission. And that Judas has gone his own way and is separated from God and from Jesus. They spent three and a half years together. They slept together. They ate together. They were fearful together. They learned together. They were bonded to each other. And then one is taken away and is no longer a part. And when I read that, I thought about Matthew as he's writing those words and Surely he must have had a pain in his heart. And I thought to myself, we can talk about people in our families, we can talk about our neighbors, we can talk about people we know, and we can think of all these reasons why they might even deserve being separated from Jesus. You could do that with Judas. You say, well, he was a treasurer, and we know he was stealing from the treasury that the disciples had. We know from Scripture that he betrayed Jesus for money. We know he had all of these faults. Matthew says that there were just 11 of us. Can you hear the sadness in that? You know people in your own family. You know people who are very close to you physically who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Does that break your heart? Does that burden your heart? I think like Matthew, it ought to get our attention that they're not all walking with Jesus. Just like it got his attention, there were only 11 left. If you look on in those same two verses, the occasion is that they did what they'd been told. They went back to Galilee, where Jesus had spent much of his ministry, They went up on the side of a mount, which is what Jesus often did. And why did he do that? He took such an interest in individuals and wanted to spend time with individuals that he often would take them apart where he could sit down and talk to them, where he could get their attention. That might say something about our attention span, how he needed to get us away from all of the pressures 
and away from all of the confusion. And on the side of that mountain, he begins to talk to them and begins to share this great commission that he's given. And Scripture simply says that after they got up there, Jesus came to them. And they dropped to their knees and began to worship. That's quite understandable, isn't it? You know, if you and I really understand what I said in my pastoral prayer, if we really understand how utterly lost we have been and how by grace we have been saved, when we walk in the door to our church, we ought to be tremendously humbled before a God who would love us. And my friends, he has loved you. He loves you now. He will love you all the days of your life. And he, at great personal cost, is going to reach out at the very moment of our death and take us by the hand and lead us into eternity. And everything's going to be okay. What a difference that makes in worship when you understand what he has and what he is going to do. It's interesting, there's a little comma there, and it says, but some of them still doubted. You know, I don't know why it's this way, but we, as we are in the church for a while and we start to mature in our faith, we start to expect everybody else to be right where we are spiritually. And folks, when I stand in front of you on Sunday, I know that's not true. We are at all different levels of spiritual maturity. And wherever we are, we have been somewhere less before we got to where we are. Now, some of these disciples who go ahead and become committed to the Lord Jesus, some of them are still saying, what is going on here? What was that all about on the cross? Is it really him standing here? See, they had questions about all that. And you and I ought to see questions like that as opportunities to gently and lovingly share Scripture with other people. Never to come across harshly. Never to come across like, I know this, why don't you? That doesn't serve any useful purpose in the kingdom, folks. It's out of humility and it's out of brokenness that God can use us. And I don't hear Matthew saying, well, shame on you for being doubters. Instead, he just keeps right on with his narrative, doesn't he? If you look on down to verse, verse 18, he talks about the authority that has been given. And he says it so simply. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority? King of kings? Lord of lords? You know, you look around at our culture and you'd say, Is he really in control? Aren't there so many things going on in our own community and in other communities all across this country that would say he's not in control? And yet Jesus said, I want you to know all authority has been given to me. The kind of authority that would cause Jesus to walk down a very narrow, rocky road and see a person who is lame and would cause him to stop and reach out and touch that person and enable them to walk again. Or a person who is blind 
and for Jesus to reach out and touch them and to heal that sight. That's authority, folks. That's authority over all of God's creation in heaven and on earth. Or how about the time that he's teaching and a man named Jairus who works in the temple comes to him and said, I have one daughter. Put yourself in Jairus' place. She's 12 years old. She's dying. Won't you please come? And Jesus starts to go to her. And as he is going, someone else encounters him, needs his help. He stops. He heals that person. And as he's starting to go to Jairus' home again, someone comes and says, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. Jesus said, don't lose hope. Let's go. He goes to the house. He tells the mom and dad that she's asleep. She's not dead. And they actually laughed at him. He takes the inner three disciples with him and the mom and dad, and he goes into the girl's room. And can you picture our Savior reaching out and saying, wake up. And her spirit, Scripture says, returned to her. She was dead. And because he had the authority, because he was God with us, she took a breath and got up and he had her fed. She was okay. You know, we, we forget in this world we live in, with airplanes flying over our head and trains flying by and, and watching the stock market and everything else that we do, we forget that we are not the absolute authority. There's only one. It is Jesus. Now, why does he tell them that he's the absolute authority. What's his purpose in saying that? He knows something they don't know. He knows he's about to send them out to do mission work, and he is not going to be physically there. He will have ascended into heaven. And he's saying to them, I want you to know I have empowered you to keep the commission I'm about to give you. And the way he does that is he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Do you remember what Jesus told us before he ascended? He said he had to go, didn't he? Remember why he had to go? Because the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, was going to come on us, the church. And when the Spirit of God dwells in us, it's as Jesus were standing here with us, it's as if we were being embraced by God himself. And what he's saying to his disciples is, I have a purpose. And not only do I have all authority, but I am equipping you to do the very thing I'm asking you to do. You know how the... Uh, portrait of the woman became famous. Before it was stolen and moved back and forth, it wasn't a very famous painting. 
But I dare say most everybody in the world knows about the Mona Lisa. And I believe that we know about it because of what happened. It became very famous by the time it finally got back to the Louvre. And people all around the world knew about that painting. And then artists took accounting of it and began to look at it and see what an unusual artwork it really is, a masterpiece. Well, interesting thing. As we, under the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to live life for Him, and we start to do what He wants us to do, we start to see ourselves in a whole new light. And we begin to experience Him in a whole new way. In 19 and 20, he gives the commission. He starts out by saying, and i got to believe Matthew did this, Go! I don't think he said go. I just don't believe that. Do you? Back in 1991, the Soviet Union fell. Absolutely imploded. Not because of Gorbachev. Because of him. It was in his timing. And that whole network just imploded. Almost immediately, God reached out and touched the Minister of Education for the country of Russia. How many of you know this story? Anybody? And what he did is he turned, because he still had the power and the influence, and he said, we are a morally bankrupt people, meaning all 13 satellite countries in Russia. And we need somebody to teach us about ethics about what's right and what's wrong, so we individually can be obedient instead of being forced by the government. So you know what he did? He called on the Christian community outside of his country and said, come tell us about ethics. And folks, 80 different organizations and ministries and denominations, including ours, responded immediately. A ministry called Commission was put together. I and a whole lot of other folks from our denomination went to the Ukraine. We had people scattered all throughout those Soviet satellite countries. We led studies using the Jesus movie and teaching people We had plenary groups with, when I was in, with 450 teachers, and it was not optional. They had to be there. That's good and bad. It's bad because it would be nice if they'd wanted to be there, but why would they want to be there? They knew nothing about Christianity. It's good because we had a chance to talk to them. At the end of the plenary group, they broke us out into small groups, and each one of us had a group of 12 school teachers, elementary and a translator. <clears throat> the group I was in, there was a lady sitting right where Bob is sitting, just a little closer. She was scary close. And we were in a circle. She sat down on Monday afternoon at 1 o'clock, and she let it be known right away that none of those other teachers ought to be in that circle because I was a Christian. Every time I would make a statement and it would go through my translator, she'd give rebuttal. She was angry. Her face was distorted. 
She wanted me to be gone from there. You know, because the Soviet Union failed, communism didn't disappear. Most of the time, the same people ran the country. They just changed labels over their door. And that teacher didn't want these other teachers to be exposed to the gospel. She argued with me and fussed with me for two solid days. I made the decision not to struggle against her. I just let her, first of all, she was speaking in another language. I couldn't argue anyway. But I just let her go ahead and do what she did, and I tried to love her. I read somewhere that's a good tactic. Have you read that? Just love people. On Wednesday, we gave out Bibles in all of our small groups, and I gave out 12 Bibles plus one to my interpreter. They could get a Russian or Ukrainian language Bible. She took that Bible and she looked at it, and I thought she was, it was a big Bible, and I thought she was going to break it in half. She was the most unhappy human being you've ever seen. She was in her early 40s and looked like she was in her 60s or 70s. She was slapped, wore out. And part of that is the oppression of a godless nation. On Thursday, she just sat there. She didn't smile at me, but she didn't say anything. On Friday, she sat there and she didn't say a word. We all got through, and some of those teachers that were in my group and in the larger group, some of them were there because they were young teachers and they were inquisitive and wanted to learn. Others were there merely because they had to be there. There were a few who were there who were very antagonistic. We said goodbye to them, and we went into a debriefing meeting. After the debriefing meeting, I walked out, and I walked to the top of these monumental stairs, and it was snowing outside, and I looked down, and that lady was standing in the middle of the foyer. I thought she might have come to resolve things. I had no idea why she was there. And I told another minister I was with that I needed to take a minute. I knew she couldn't speak English, and I couldn't speak Romanian. I walked down the stairs, and she reached inside of her overcoat and pulled the Bible out and held it against her chest. And she hugged me with the sweetest smile you have ever seen and turned around and walked out the door. Who's in charge, folks? I don't know if I planted or watered. I think I wasn't watering. I think I was planting. But somebody else, praise God, saw the fruit of that. You see, he's saying to us, I want to commission you, and here's how the commission goes. Go! You let me worry about the language problems. You let me worry about the cultural problems. You let me worry about all the rest of it. I just want you to get up and go. And he says, go and make disciples. You all know what a disciple is. We in the Christian church use that word all the time. You know what a disciple is? A disciple is someone who becomes a follower of somebody else. We all understand how that works. In society, secular society, somebody changes the dress code. Next thing you know, everybody else is dressing like that person. A member of my house, one of my children, decided I wasn't dressing mod enough, so they suggested 
I might want to change my attire. It was at a point in their life where they were trying all kinds of new things. So I came walking out for dinner one night with a sweater on with my tie outside of the sweater. And this child looked at me and said, you can't go out like that. You didn't put your tie in. I said, well, I'm going to start a new fad. And the child said, you can't start a new fad. I won't go out with you if you don't put your tie in. You know, if I'd gone out with my tie out, somebody would have seen it and said, oh, and they would have pulled their tie out. That, that's the culture you and I live in. He says, I want you to make disciples. I want you to touch people and model for people, and I want you to know that the purpose is that they might follow Jesus. And he said, I want you to do that and make disciples of all nations. We heard a great example this morning of what our denomination, and I want you to know other denominations are doing a good job at this also in our Hispanic ministries. Southern Baptist Church is showing the most growth in any area of their denomination in Hispanic ministries. We all know, as you pointed out, a third of this population is going to be Hispanic before this is over. So that's the fertile ground. That's the harvest. You don't have to go overseas to reach people from other nations. Just go to any large metropolitan area in our country. And there are conclaves of them and large gatherings of them in Atlanta, in Charlotte, in Miami, all the major cities. So when the Lord says to us, I commission you to go, he's talking about go to the person who lives next door to you, go to the person who associates with you in public places, Go to folks in this state and in this country, but go. And when you have the opportunity and he burdens your heart to do it, go on a mission trip. I've always said, and you know this, that when you go on a mission trip, absolutely we get the biggest blessing. If you want to experience the power of God at work in your life, you get involved in missions and go on a mission trip. He goes on to say, baptizing them. When a person comes to faith, there needs to be an outward expression of that faith. And Matthew says, repeating Jesus, what you do is you baptize them. That's a way of saying they are part of the body of Christ. And after you baptize them, then you start nurturing them. You start teaching them. Always lovingly, always compassionately, never in a demanding kind of way, or your student won't want to learn from you. That's the Great Commission. Jesus has said to us, I want you to go. And folks, there's a way for you to do that right where you live today. There's an opportunity for every one of us to keep that great commission. It would be so pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ who has commissioned us and who has prepared us for us to do it for Him. We can make a million excuses. None of them negate the commission He has given to us. And the fair and right thing 
is for those of us who have received so much grace to say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And for us to go. And he doesn't say, you go and I'll stay back and watch. He says, you go, but I want you to know, lo, I am with you always, even until the close of the age. Amen? Let's pray. Father, if we could get excited about personal mission, if we individually would respond to your commission, what a difference it would make in our individual lives, what a difference it would make in our church, and absolutely, Lord, what a difference it would make in the lives of those who would come to know you, for they would share eternity with us and not be like Judas. Use us, Lord. You already know who you want us to talk to. Use us to be your mouth and your hands and your heart here. Thank you for Matthew. Thank you that he did the very thing he reported. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it would be just terribly disheartening is if I walk out of here today and you walk out of here today with more, no more intentionality about keeping the Great Commission than we had when we walked in. God had a purpose in having those words recorded for us. And my friends, they were for you and for me. God bless you and God keep you. May you feel his presence in your personal life. May you know how much he loves you and how he's going to abide with you and how he will use you. May his light truly shine on you. And may you be a blessing to other people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.